There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I say? Who shall I Welcome back. Hopefully you hung with me through the Watchers and the Giants. We figured out how we got to the mindset of mankind and God's reply, the transition from the old earth to the new earth, all the key plays, and now let's look at the key player finally for a minute. What kind of man was Noah? How did God decide that this guy was the guy? What kind of personality could handle such a you know, devastating news and get to work? We know that God loves delegating authority. He loves sharing his endless power with his subordinates, the sons of God, the angels in the spiritual realm, and the dirt creatures that he blew his spirit into on the earthly realm. He doesn't need any of us, but he loves us, and he wants to share his story and plan with us. So loving, so inviting. Do we ruin it from time to time? Sure, but, you know, that's what makes it fun, right? Okay, now... When he usually chooses a partner, they have something in common, and that's chutzpah. Even if you don't know the definition, you know what it means. That's boldness, gumption, the, the brazen nerve, guts. The guy's a dude, as the kids say today. Now, this can be used for tov or ra, good or bad, of course, like all gifts that the Creator God gives us. We have a choice on what we do with them, how to use them. Remember Paul? Yes, that Paul, the one who wrote about 30% of the New Testament, went all over the Mediterranean rim, planting house churches in the most unchurched of places, took the role of the apostle to levels that no one, none of his colleagues had even fathomed, even though they got to walk with Jesus abundantly more than he. Yeah, well, don't forget that Paul used to be Saul, and Saul was self-described as the Hebrew of Hebrews amazing student of the Torah, a Roman citizen, a Pharisee, and study, studying under the tutelage of one of the most famous Hebrew rabbis who was Gamaliel. Paul was brilliant with a touch of crazy, as most geniuses are. There's a famous story in Acts 6 where Stephen became the first martyr for Christ. He delivered an epic story, an epic speech to the Jewish courts, and for his efforts, he was stoned to death. And who happened to be there? Who told his brethren, hey guys, let me hold your jacket so you can really rifle those rocks at this guy. That was Paul, Saul at the time. Saul was on an absolute mission to stomp out this Jesus movement, this cult called the way. It was destroying his precious and beloved faith, spitting in the face of his lustrous Jewish history as God's chosen people. He viewed this as blatant blasphemy. Okay, we all know this guy and this story. I, I said that because I, I heard a sermon once um, by Andy Stanley. 
and it's not a true story, but it's a cool take on, you know, let's say this was a, a good discussion going up. If we take on how God sees people versus how we see people or even how angels see us, the fable was Yahweh's up in heaven strolling around. He looks down on earth and he sees Saul murdering these rebellious Jews in the streets. And he calls over a prophet or two. Hey, hey, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, get over here. Take a look at this guy. Look at this guy. And the prophet said, you mean the guy murdering and terrifying and chasing all the chosen people and also the Gentiles? And Adonai said, yeah, man, look at him. He's so passionate. I can work with that guy. You know, and that might have been met with blank stares from his old partners on the earth. But the point is, it's the same as an old phrase when you're selecting a dog from a litter to work with you in the fields. That dog will hunt. He might need some polishing and refining, but I see a tool. I see a variable that cannot be taught. It is inside you, the intangibles, like a scout describing a talent to management, wanting to take a risk on a guy that might have passed on him on the eyeball test, but the scout sees something in him. He has that fire. He has that thing that beats the analytics. The attribute of clutch is a real thing, in my opinion. It can't be measured. It can't be examined. It's just there, and you will never know if a guy or a gal has it until they are pressed. That's who God typically partners with. That or some form of it. Finding this in Noah has been a challenge for me. It's not obvious. Let me explain. I got this concept from a Bayma podcast on, on a Midrash story that he reviewed. It's, it's a character study that I'm going to play with a little and tweak. I'm going to talk about a few characters, Noah, obviously, but also Abraham and his nephew. Also, anyone, Bible quiz, who's Abraham's nephew that he had such a close relationship with? That's right. It's Lot or Lot. So we'll talk about him a touch. And this, this wasn't in the story, but I'm adding him. And that is Moshe, Moses to us Gentiles. I love the original name, though. I never had a son, but that's a cool name. Moshe, Moshe. You know, maybe when I buy my African gray parrot, I'm going to name him that and teach him some Hebrew phrases to annoy some visitors. All right, back on track. Let's start with the text. Always the best place to start. And let's see the character and personality of these key figures based on their actions and dialogue. Let's start with our boy, lead off with Noah. Quoting from Genesis 6, I'm skipping the Nephilim part this time. Don't worry, I'm done with that topic. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a godly man. He was blameless among his contemporaries. He walked with God. Not too many characters are described as walking with God. That's something to pay attention to. That's some high cotton praise right there. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was ruined in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and indeed it was ruined, for all living creatures on the earth were sinful. So God said to Noah, I have decided that all living creatures must die, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I am about to destroy them and the earth. Make for yourself an ark of cypress wood, Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. Pitch is like tar. It, it makes the wood watertight. This is how you should make it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for the ark and finish it, leaving 18 inches at the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm about to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under the sky all the living creatures that have breath of life in them. Everything that is on the earth will die. 
but I will confirm my covenant with you. You will enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. You must bring into the ark every kind of living creature from all flesh, male and female, to keep them alive with you, of the birds after their kind, of the cattle after their kind, of the creeping things, of the ground after their kind. Two of every kind will come to you so you can keep them alive, and you must take for yourself every kind of food that is eaten and gather it together. It will be food for you and them. And Noah did all that God commanded him. He did indeed. End quote. The redundance of that last word is on purpose. It underscores the obedience. Another way of saying is, uh, and thus he did. All right, let's get to another guy. Well, hold on. First, first, let's do a quick look at Genesis 13 to see how we got Lot to the city of Sodom. Okay, so we have Abram. His name was Abram before Yahweh changed it to Abraham. Long story. I'm skipping that. Uh, they've been very successful in their endeavors, both of them. They have lots of property and wealth. They're killing it, basically. So much so that they are bursting at the seams. They need to make a decision. So in verse 8, we have this quote. Abram said to Lot, Let there be no quarreling between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before us? Separate yourself now from me. If you go left, then I will go right. But if you go right, then I will go left. And Lot looked up and saw the whole region of the Jordan. He noticed that all of it was well watered. This was before the Lord obliterated Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Any antennas going off there? Any Eden callbacks? Someone seeing what's good in their own eyes and take, taking just like Eve, right? All right, all the way to Zoar, Lot chose for himself the whole region of the Jordan and traveled toward the east. See that? Same thing, the east. So the relatives separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, but Lot settled among the cities of the Jordan plains and pitched his tents next to Sodom, end quote. Okay, that's not much about the character, but it, it tells us how Lot got to Sodom. Well, one thing here that speaks to Abram did you notice that he allowed his nephew to choose? Whose choice was it really? Who had seniority here? It was obviously Abram's choice to make. That's a pretty big decision, you know? And he gave that to his nephew. Hey, Lot, no more fighting. Let's part ways. Go in peace. I'll tell you what. You choose. You pick. Whatever you want, go ahead. I'll take the scraps. I'll take door number two. That says a lot about Abram. Most would not have done that, myself included. Also, we learn later that that Lot is no longer in a tent. He's got a house. And lastly, he's found sitting at the city gates. Dude, that's, that's the business hub, man. That's the equivalent of a modern-day you know, political lobbyist. That's where the action is. That's where the deals get done. So Lot has walked into town and got himself snuggled in pretty well. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's hit Abram, Abraham. Genesis 18. This is when uh, you know God and the two angels show up looking like humans, and Abraham wants to bring them in because he's such a generous host. They just told them that you know he's going to have a son. Quote, when the men got up to leave, they looked over at Sodom. And then the Lord said, he's talking to the angels, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all the nations on the earth earth may receive blessings through him. I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after 
him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then the Lord will give to Abraham what he promised him. So the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so blatant that I must go down there and see if they are as wicked as this outcry suggests. If not, I want to know. And the two men turned and headed toward Sodom, but Abraham was standing before the Lord. Abraham approached him and said, Will you really sweep away the godly amongst the wicked? What, what if there's 50 godly people in that city? Will you really wipe them out and not spare the place for the sake of 50? 50 godly people who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the godly with the wicked, treating the godly and wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the whole earth do what is right? So the Lord replied, If I find in the city of Sodom 50 godly people, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham asked, since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, although I am just dust and ashes, what if there are five less than 50 godly people? Will you destroy the whole city because those five are lacking? He replied, I will not destroy it if there's 45 there. Abraham spoke to him again. What if 40 are found there? He replied, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry, so to speak. He's like, you know, can I say it a few more times? <laughs> What if 30 are found there? And God replied, I will not do it if I find 30. And Abraham said, since I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, what if 20 are found there? And he replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And finally, Abraham said, may the Lord not be angry so I can just speak one more time. What if 10 are found there? And he replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. The Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. Then Abraham returned home, end quote. Man, there's so much going on there. This, I, I could do three podcasts on this one. So many rabbit holes, the guts of this guy. He is negotiating with the creator of the universe. You guys see, and he knows that's who it is. He's winning souls. Also, why did he stop at 10? Why not take it down to one? It's so good. There's so many things about that. Why not ask? Can you just not destroy the place? There is one thought that he knows that, here's one theory, that he knows that Lot and his family are about 10 people total. So Abraham was like, oh, okay, all right, we're good now. We got, I got my boy. So go ahead. I mean, that's not the point. Hopefully you saw the main point of the story. Chutzpah, chutzpah, baby. All right, I added this character, you know, in here myself. It wasn't in the teaching that I heard, but I really think it brings the point home. Let's go to Moses. This is right after the golden calf incident. The Israelites thought Moses wasn't coming back down from the mountain and they moved on. They moved on in a bizarro way. They asked Aaron to make them new gods to guide them. Aaron asked them to take off all their gold from their earrings and nose rings and bracelets. Let's melt those down to a calf. And then Aaron builds an altar to them. Gosh, again, so much going on here. I can't dwell on it. Moving on. Let's just say that Yahweh is, uh, he's none too pleased with this one. He actually becomes quite furious. I think flabbergasted might be another way to put it. He can't believe the stupidity, short-sightedness of his people as it tends to happen. He's had enough. So Yahweh says in verse seven to Moses, quote, the Lord said to Moses, go quickly, descend because your people who you brought out from the land of Egypt, your people, 
It's that reminds me of when like a husband and wife are discussing the poor behavior of a child. And one parent says, do you know what your son did today? All right. Your, your, your kids have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way that I commanded them. They have become for them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. You feel the vibe here from Yahweh? He goes on. Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. What a stiff-necked people they are. Now, leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I will destroy them and I will make from you a great nation. End quote. Any feels coming from this in the Noah story? You know, he's trying to hit the reset button. You see that? Let's see how Moses responds. Quote from verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and he said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people who you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say for evil? He led them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, your servants, to whom you swore by yourself and told them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven and all this land that I've spoken about. I will give to your descendants and they will inherit it forever. Then the Lord relented over the evil that he said he would do to his people. End quote. Sheesh. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The Bible is amazing. You should read the Bible. Do you see the tactic from Moshe here? He brings the ownership back on God by reminding him that these are his people. Then he harps on the gossip that is going to spread in Egypt, the fertile crescent. They're going to start talking about how evil of a God you are, that that you would not just kill your people as a punishment. You took it so far as to trick them into coming out into the desert wasteland wilderness and then killing him. That's what they're going to say about you if you do this, God. And God, remember when you promised to make descendants of these people as plentiful as the stars in the sky? Well, if you kill them, then this is going to be very hard to do. In other words, Moses is going to God saying, you're not like this. This isn't you. This isn't the God I know. Not the one I've had daily discussions with. If you do this, you are going to look like all the other gods and you know it. All the miracles and signs and wonders that you performed beautifully in Egypt to show those people and their gods that you are the one and only in control. All of that is going to be discredited and downplayed if you act like this. Please don't do this. And guess what? God doesn't do it. He relents. Okay. Now let's think of our boy Noah here. Is there anything striking to you when you look at the reaction of Abraham and Moses versus the reaction of Noah when told about an upcoming terrible destruction coming? Anything at all? God goes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy this town, not the world, one town. And Abraham gets into a long, long discussion with God, negotiating for life, pleading with him, please don't kill these innocent people. Please take your vengeance down a touch. Please rethink this. Next, we have Moses. God comes to him and lets him know that he wants to start over with the Jewish people. This sect of people is just not cutting it. They're too stubborn and useless. He's got to pivot. 
And how does Moses respond to God? Wanting him to get out of the way so God can kill all the people and get back to work, starting with him. Moses begs and pleads. He tries to talk him out of it. He leans on the fact that this is going to undo all the good that was already done. This is going to do more harm than good. Then we go back to Noah. God says to Noah, I am going to destroy the entire world and everything in it. And Noah says, cool, man. Got it. (laughs) No no objections here. Isn't that wild? In fact, it says he responds how? And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So God, am I the only one left alive? Oh, no, no, no. You and your family. But everyone else you've ever known or you will ever know, they're going to be wiped away in a flood. And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. When do I get started? (laughs) Okay, what does that teach us? Noah is an insulator. As long as he and his people and his immediate circle are okay, then he's okay. Do I get the ark? Is my family safe? Am I going to be okay? Worried about himself. Now, Lot is something different. He's something called, you know, an, an assimilator. He gets comfortable in any setting and gets used to it. He can even use it for good. The type of person who can walk into a party alone and leave with five new friends. Abraham and Moshe are putting others first. They wrestle with God. They genuinely hurt when others hurt. They are engagers. They stand in the gap and fight for a better solution. God shows up to Noah and says, I'm going to destroy the whole world. Noah says, when do you need the boat ready? He shows up to Lot, and Lot is so busy being one of the cool kids that he's lost his witness. He can't change the hearts and minds of others because he's fitted so much that he looks and acts no different than his neighbors and wastes his chance. God shows up to Abraham and Moses and says, I'm going to kill everyone, and they say, please don't do that. This is who God can work with typically. So the character study and thought of this podcast is to think back and try and figure out which one are you? Which way do you lean? What's your tendency? We all fall into one of these camps and they all have their flaws. Sometimes the people pleasers are so busy worrying about others that they neglect themselves and they never do anything that is about them because they feel bad. They feel selfish and vice versa for the others. Now think about this. Jesus comes back. We got fire and flames going, lightning striking, riding a horse, carrying a sword of vengeance. He lets you and your fellow Christians know, guys, I'm here. Don't worry anymore. You guys are safe. It's finally over. I'm here to hand out judgment. The time has come. The sin of this world is too great. It's cleanup time. I'm here to judge the wicked as only I can. And it's go time. How many Jesus followers would be sitting there and thinking, it's about dang time? Don't lie to yourself. What would your response be to this? Would you be Noah and put on your helmet and enjoy the show? Would you have been a loat and miss the meeting with Jesus because you're too busy at the bar or the football game with your boys? Or would you plead with Jesus? Wait, Tyler, you can't change God's mind. He's God. This is God's will. This has to play out. Sure, it might sting a bit, but, but it's what God says. And besides, he said we're cool, so what's the big deal? These people have gotten away with way too much for way too long. It's payback time. They got what's coming to them. Yes, that is true. But what if you tried just like Moses and Abraham? Who knows what could happen? What if you raised your hand and humbly asked, uh, excuse me, Mr. Mr. Jesus? We're in the South. That's how we 
talk to people. Mr. Jesus, please, please don't do this. Give them another chance. I have read too much about you that this is your way. You are a healer and a restorer. You can't do this. I've seen too much in the text that tells me you're not here for street justice. Please reconsider. I have found this to be an incredibly difficult exercise to go through. If I'm being honest with myself, this is convicting, man. What a great lesson. And I tell you what, we as American Christians, we might be the worst. We are assimilated, man, to the high hills. We don't have any religious strife or persecution, not compared to the world around us. Getting killed for saying that you're a Jesus follower. Worst that can happen to us is you might lose some followers online. I mean, people probably don't even know that you're a Jesus follower. Ouch. Unless they catch a book in your house or a wooden sign in your kitchen. But we as American Christians also love the rules. We want it both ways. We don't want to rock the boat and get called out and make a hard stance for our faith. But we also love to start sentences with, the Bible says you can't do that. It's the rules. Ugh. What a double whammy of useless. Why would anyone come to the faith after interacting with someone like that? Short answer is they probably won't. So if you want a fun exercise, ask this scenario to your Bible study group or your extended family or neighbors. If God came down and said, I'm about to destroy the whole world, but you and your family are going to be okay, how would you respond? What is your first emotion? You will be blown away by the answers. Let me tell you, we did this a couple years ago and I still look at people different. <laughs> it was eye opening and shock. It's very fun. Give it a try. Now, I don't want to dump on my Bible superstar here, man. Let, let's zoom out and look at this differently. Okay, well, let's do the dichotomy. Noah was given a brutal task. Like I said, what kind of person could handle this news? Seven other people on a disgusting smelling boat for months and months. This can't be done by some bleeding heart softy. Please know that. Yeah, he might not have begged God to save the world, but he's a good soldier, man. He doesn't question the, the divine plan. He probably didn't understand it, but it was a command. How much better would we all do if we just did as God commanded? But God knows that's not the default of all humans at this point. I, I always say question everything. I wish I had more Noah in me sometimes. God needed a righteous man for this horrific request, but he needed someone with some stones. Because what if what's about to happen is going to be worse than anything the world has ever seen? God needs a rock. Someone whose hand does not shake. One who can handle a killing. And as Rodney Dangerfield says, the killers are wanted in all 50 states. Can you imagine the mental toll this took on Noah? You will see that it changed him. What a case of post-traumatic stress disorder. None of these details are there, but get into, get into the day-to-day -day of this. When those doors slam home on that ark and the water is rising, what are the sounds outside? Can you hear the screams? Can you hear the wailing of those left to die? Could there be banging on the hull of the ship? Those people desperately attempting to board the panic the bleeding and the howls of the last of the animals and then the death rattle and then absolute morbid silence. That baffling silence of the world ending. 150 days of water, 
five months straight, day and night, and then another two and a half months as the water drains and you can see the mountaintops. What are these days like? What does it smell like? What are the conversations amongst them as they realize they're the only ones left on planet Earth? Was God in communication with them? I don't see that in the text. Was Yahweh ever reassuring him? It's not there. I mean, it tells us that God told him to build an ark, but it never says that God said, don't worry, at the end of this, you and your family will be able to get off the ark. You can glean from the text that this might have been his thought because we start to see the other side of Noah in this new normal. He starts to take things into his own hands. He stops waiting for God and he starts making moves. God never says to open the window or to send out the raven or the dove. He doesn't say to open the ark and he definitely doesn't instruct him to grow a vineyard first thing when he gets off and gets drunk. His character shifted like a soldier coming home from war. No one around the kitchen table can understand what they have been through. Same here. Who can relate to this? Maybe this is the type of person that God needed. This is heavy work. You might relate more to Moses or Abraham or Noah, but you know these scenarios to a certain degree. You know those people that fall apart at you know normal day-to-day bumps of life, and yet when a big emergency happened, they're the calmest one in the room. What is that? And vice versa, when you see the person that appears to have it all together, cools a cucumber, then a person starts choking or drowning or convulsing, that guy melts. <laughs> the human condition is so fascinating, it's impossible to master these internal battles every single day that we fight, Noah was tasked with news of destruction that surpassed far more than any humans capable. The atomic bombs got nothing on the flood and he took it in stride or so it seemed as we delve into the other side of this flood and how it changed our protagonist, our preservationist in the next episode of this saga. Stay tuned. I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out. (laughs) 